There is a story in Genesis 13, right after Abraham received the promise from God that he would be a great nation, he would have land, he would be a blessing. And it's the story of how uh, the place got too small for uh, Abraham and Lot. And so the people that were looking after their herds, they, they quarreled. And uh, Abraham said to his nephew Lot, Okay, you know, let's not do this. Let's not live so close together that our herdsmen are, you know, fighting with each other, stepping on each other's toes. Why don't you choose where you want? Where you choose, you take this land, I will take this one. You choose this one, I will take this one. And so Lot looked and he saw, eh, this part, the plains of Jordan is well watered. And so he chose the better land. And Abraham, his senior, his uncle said, okay, fine, you take this one, I'll take Another one. Now, Abraham's actions can be understood in light of something Paul tells us in this passage. It makes sense of why he did what he did. And it's a short phrase contained in a passage where Paul sums up the promise that was given to Abraham as that he would be heir of the world. So you see, obviously it makes sense, right? If if Abraham understood that hey, not just a small plot of land, but if all of it, if I'm going to be heir of the world, if all of it belongs to me, then yeah, Lord, you can just take now, but in the end, it's all mine. Now the reason why I mention this is because in that same passage, not only is Abraham heir of the world, but those who are his descendants. That means we have learned that not just uh, his physical lineage, but those who share his faith will also inherit and be heirs of the world. That means, those of you here, including me, if we have faith, like a faith like Abraham's, what we will inherit is the world. And I know you read the passage, you did Bible study, I read the passage, but how many of us, when we saw that, you know, our breath stopped, our, our, our heart started beating faster because we, we have seen what this passage is saying, that we are going to get everything. I mean, so all of us, we will be heirs of the world. Now, somehow all of us, in Christ, we'll be ruling together, but the point is, he's saying is, it is all ours. You see, it is so easy to see that and to just read it as if nothing. To see that and just read it and still be preoccupied with how my stocks are doing. So friends, you see, we really do need God's help. That he would so emblazon his truth into our hearts. So please join me as we, as we ask him for this help. Father, apart from you doing your work, all of this would just be words on a page for us. But Father, you have shown us, you have taught us that this is your word. This is you speaking to us. So Father, please, in kindness and in your grace, address us in your word. Address us so that we may truly know that this is you speaking. This is your truth. This is your voice. This is your word to us. Father, help us not be dull. Help our 
ears not be shut, but please let the penny drop. That each one of us may see and may be confronted and may be convinced of your truth and may be brought to a true and genuine faith in you and in your Son and in your Word. We pray in His name. Amen. Keep your Bibles open to uh, Genesis, oh, sorry, uh, Romans 4. And you see that phrase in verse 13. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. So Paul is still on a section where he is trying to tell his audience that Jew and Gentile alike, saved by faith, saved by the righteousness that God gives through faith. So there's no difference between Jew and Gentile, because if it was through the law, then the Gentiles would be excluded because they didn't have the law. Now, Paul makes another point in verse 14, for if those who depend on the law are as, faith means nothing, and the promise is worthless. Now, what, what does he mean here? Well, this can be illustrated by a simple example. Now, yeah, illustrated. Uh, this is just an illustration. So if I come to you and I say, I promise that I will give you a million dollars if you can swim around the world. I need it. I promise you I will give you that. Now, the promise is worthless because none of you jokers can swim let alone around the world. You can't even swim 500 kilometers. Right? So the promise is worthless. So, therefore, Paul continues in verse 16. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. See, it is a different category when it is not dependent on what you must do, but it is entirely dependent on God's grace. And if it's dependent on God's grace, the promise is secure, the promise is guaranteed. And so, instead of saying, swim around the world, I'll give you a million dollars, I could simply say, I have a million dollars, just come up, get it from me, I'll give it to you. See, it's nothing about what you do. All you do in your coming up is by faith coming and receiving it. It is all dependent on, okay, obviously I need to have the million dollars. That's why I said it is an illustration. So none of you come out, please. I don't have a million dollars. Um, but you see, it is, it is a different category when it is based on law and one that is based on grace. If it is based on law, then you have to do it. And the giver has to be by obligation. Because you have done it, he is obliged and he gives you. But if it is by grace, then all you need to do is to come and to receive. And it is because it is founded on the foundation of grace, the promise is guaranteed. You see, you need to meditate and, and just think about that connection between faith and grace. Why is it that if it is founded on grace, 
the most appropriate response, the most normal state of the human heart that meets and accords with this grace is that state of faith. Why, why is there this connection between faith and grace? Because faith is not a work. Faith is the coming to receive with open hands what grace wants to give. Okay, that's why faith is the most appropriate response to grace. Now Paul is going to tell us what this grace is all about when he says in verse 17, As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Okay, so Paul has already told us that the promise that was given to Abraham is founded on the basis of grace. And so he elaborates, when Abraham believed in God, what did he believe in? What about God did he believe? He believed that God is the one who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. That is an expression of a description of the God of grace. God in his grace does this. The God who gives this promise founded on grace is a God who calls into being things that were not. This is a God who brings life when there is uh, death. And so this phrase, he calls into being things that were not, is explained in verse 18. So Paul tells us, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. Now what does that mean? Against all human hope. That means he looked at the human resources, human strategy, okay, that gives no hope. So against all human hope, because human hope gives no hope, he didn't put his hope in that, but in hope in God, Abraham believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. So you see, Abraham believed when God gave him the promise, you shall be the father of many nations. Now, at that point in time, when Abraham was given this promise, the many nations, the offsprings, did not exist. But this is the God who calls into being things that were not. Just because God has said it, and even though at present it doesn't exist, it is as good as already there, it is as good as given. Because God has determined, this is the God He is. He calls into being things that were not. So Abraham can believe, even though at this point in time they are non-existent. Okay. So the second phrase of verse 17, calls into being things that were not, is explained in verse 18. The things that were not are the nations, the many offspring. But Abraham believed. Now the first part of the phrase, this God who gives life to the dead, is explained in verse 19. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. Since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. You see, it picks up the word from verse 17. So verse 19 is uh, going back to the point in Genesis, in Genesis 17. 
Okay, when, uh, you know, Abraham, he is 99 years old, when the promise was first given to him, okay, back in Genesis 12, he was 65, 75 years old, something like that. Now, when he was 75 years old and uh, Sarah was 65, I mean, there still remained a, a glimmer of hope, some sliver of chance that, you know, 75, 65, I mean, maybe, right, if they're really healthy, it's still possible they could have a child. But God didn't cause it to happen then. He waited and waited until come to this point when he's 99. And then Sarah is, you know, a 90-year-old uh, lady. At this point, when it becomes humanly impossible, when it becomes clear that there's no human resource, no human answer. Then God says to them, okay, next year, you will have a child. And you know, indeed they do. They name him Isaac, and he is a child of promise. He is a child that was conceived by the God who calls, who gives life when there is uh, death, brings life to the dead. Because Abraham, reproductively speaking, is as good as dead. Sarah, her womb, she has never given birth. She has been barren all her life. It is as good as dead. But this is the God who gives life to the dead. This is God in His grace acting His purposes out according to His gracious promise. Now this picture of Abraham and Sarah conceiving out of their deadness, coming forth life, coming forth Isaac. Now, this is a picture of our life. This is a picture of our, from deadness, by grace being given life. Now, this is what we saw in Ephesians 2. So, if you are a quick flipper, you may flip back with me. If not, you can just listen. So in Ephesians 2, the first few verses, Paul establishes that we are dead. We are dead in our sins, we are dead in our transgressions. And in verse 4 he says, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. You see that? We were dead. But God in His love and mercy, He has made us alive. And Paul, you see what does he say next? Look at it. He says, It is by grace you have been saved. You see, because there is no human hope, there is no human answer of how to bring spiritual life to those who are spiritually dead. It is by grace that in that deadness, God brings about life. It is by grace you are saved. So we are made alive by grace. And the, the most appropriate response to this grace is not works, but faith. And receiving what God has graciously done, graciously promised. Faith is the most appropriate response to grace. And so, 
if it is by grace that we are made alive and we receive all this by faith, the question we can ask is, what, what's your guarantee? What assurance do you have that you will make it to the end? Okay, that this, this, this promise that God has given by grace to you, that you have now received by faith, and uh, Paul has said this, this promise is about not, not some abstract thing, we are floating around in the sky, you know, playing harps for, for an eternity. No, it says we are going to be heirs of the world. All of it. Like what you watch on some travel show, places that you never are able to visit in this lifetime. I mean, all of it, a new created world brought back to perfection. It is yours. Now, what assurance do you have that you will make it to the end and so be able to inherit and enjoy what God has promised? Do you have any assurance that you will make it? Now, the Christian who is, you know, grounded in his Bible, you know, the, he knows that the standard answer must be yes, because the Bible gives a lot of assurance. Yes, 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 I have assurance. Yes, there's a guarantee. Okay, let me change the question. What, what about what assurance, what guarantee that you will be a Christian in 10 years time? Okay, not just make it to the end. Okay, some of us that looks like 30 years later, but what about just 10 years' time? Will you still be hanging on in faith to Christ in 10 years' time? How about not just 10 years? How about tomorrow? What assurance do you have that tomorrow when you wake up, something will not happen such that you go, okay, forget it, forget about Him. What assurance do you have? Now, some of us, when we are asked this question, I think we naturally go to, okay, 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 I, I, I've, I've persevered for the last 10 years, I've persevered for the last 5 years, you know, okay, now I, I, I've uh, embarked on a new discipline of reading the Bible and praying regularly, okay, okay, I, I think I can do it. You know, I'm part of a church that teaches the Bible, okay, I'll make sure I come and I'll hear and I'll make sure I'm fed so that I'm strengthened. No, that cannot be the ground of your assurance. It cannot be that you are able to try hard enough. It cannot be that you know that you will not let go. It cannot be that you know, okay, I will keep coming, I will keep hearing, I will do this, I will do it. That cannot be the ground of your assurance. The ground of our assurance must be in God's grace. It is by grace that He took us, us who were dead, we were dead. Dead people can't do anything. And in grace, He goes to us who are dead in our sins and transgression, and He makes us alive. It is by grace you have been saved. And the most appropriate response to this grace is faith. And so we, we want to respond in faith, and so we think, okay, yeah, I will keep believing. But don't you remember, don't you remember what we read? Even this faith, that takes hold of God's promise is given by grace. Even the faith that holds on, that in itself is given by grace. I mean, you see that. Chapter 2, verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. 
It is faith that is the instrument. It is the faith that is the open hands that receives this salvation. But then Paul goes on to say, and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift from God. All of it, the salvation, the grace, the faith, even the faith to see and to stand and to receive, it is all a gift from God. Our guarantee, our assurance is in His grace. Amazing grace. And because it is by grace. The promise is guaranteed. The promise is guaranteed. That must be our assurance. Now Paul goes on and he says about Abraham in verse 20, Yet he did not waver through unbelief, regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. Now, obviously, when we study this passage, there is the elephant in the room that we must address, which is, why does Paul say he did not waver? Why did Paul say that, uh, you know, Abraham, he was... Uh, you know, fully persuaded, he, he, he did not lapse into unbelief. But when we look at the account in Genesis, I mean, didn't he pretend that Sarah was not his wife? I mean, didn't he get a concubine? I mean, you know, produce Ishmael. Now, why, why does Paul say that? Okay, so the key word, I think, that explains why Paul is not giving us an airbrush picture of Abraham is the word there at the end of verse 20. Okay? He was strengthened in his faith. Okay, he did not waver. He had faith and he was strengthened in his faith. Now the, he was strengthened makes us ask the question, how was he strengthened? Or even a better question, who strengthened him? Now, Paul makes clear by the way he says it that the who that strengthened him is God. And the how he was strengthened, or I think we can put two and two together and see that when Abraham made mistakes, when he you know, did this instead of that, he learned from his mistakes and through the mistakes, God taught him. God strengthened him. I mean, the fact that his faith needed to be strengthened means that it wasn't perfect. It wasn't you know, a mature and robust faith right at the beginning. I mean, it was, it was a faith that like ours, when we go through periods of difficulty, when we make mistakes, God teaches us. And through that, God refines and strengthens our faith. I mean, it is, we should see this as great encouragement because we know Abraham's life. I mean, it was up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down. But, at the end of the day, the point is, he was still sitting on that chair. His faith was still in God. And so Paul can look back on it all. The Hebrew writer can look back on it all and say, no, he did not waver because he's still 
kept sitting on that chair. And through the up, down, up, down, God taught him. God strengthened his faith. Now this brings us to uh, another question. And it is a question that Paul has uh, answered so far in our passage two different ways. Okay, And the question is, why faith? Why is faith the right response? So we saw at the end of chapter 3, it is faith because faith excludes boasting. When it is done by faith, then there is no room, there's no ground, there's no basis for human boasting. So that's the first reason. Faith, because God doesn't like us to boast in ourselves, to boast in human accomplishments. So he does it by faith, so that faith excludes boasting. The second reason we saw already in verse 16, faith is the best and most appropriate response to grace. Faith accords with grace. Why faith? Because faith excludes boasting and faith best accords. Faith is in line with grace. And now the third reason we saw here is because faith gives glory to God. He was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. When we have faith in what God has promised, we give him glory. Now, a simple illustration that I learned is, you imagine a child standing at the edge of the pool, and the father is standing, you know, a few, one, two meters away from the child and says, okay, Adani, jump. Okay, jump in. Okay, daddy will catch you. Now, in what way will the child make his father look good? Okay, it will not be by doing this. Mm, mm, and then go away. Okay? That would not make his father look good. Because by doing that, the child is saying one or more of three things. Which is number one, I don't believe you can catch me. Daddy, you are incompetent. Or, number two, he can be saying, I think you can catch me, but you are not going to. You are, you are tricking me to jump in and you're not going to catch me. Or number three, he can be saying, why, why would you in? That's a stupid thing to do. So he's saying to the father, you lack wisdom. You do not know what is best for me. And so the child doesn't jump in and says one or more of these three things to his father. So the way that he would make his father look good, the way that he would give glory to his father is by having faith in the father's ability. The father's, um, he will, he will do it. He will, when he says he do it, he will do it. And the father's wisdom that this is a wise thing to do that is good for me. And so the child jumps in and gives glory to his father. So it's the same with us when we believe God. We are saying He has the power 
We are saying that he has a faithfulness and we are saying he has the wisdom to do what is best for us. So God is glorified when we have faith. So this is the reason why it is by faith. It excludes boasting. It is in line with grace and it gives glory to God. Now, Paul moves from talking about Abraham to talking to us. Verse 22, this is why it was credited to him as righteousness. And the words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Now you see the way Paul ends this section, this, this chapter, justification. Right? It brings us back to how we began all the way back at the end of chapter 3. Right? Because Paul launched into a, a long argument about the state and reality of every human being under the wrath of God. We lack righteousness, we are under sin, we are under his wrath. And the good news is that God justifies sinners by faith. And we learn that justifies means God declares a person righteous. Okay, It is a term from the law courts. So that was chapter 3. But when he came into chapter 4, he changed. He didn't use the law court language anymore. He used the accounting language. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Okay, so the thing you need to see is to be declared righteous in Paul's mind is the same as to be credited righteousness. But the question comes, if we are credited righteousness, if God credits this righteousness into our account, where does the righteousness come from? I mean, to be declared righteous, okay, I mean, you know, that's the judge, his prerogative, he declares us, okay. But then Paul helps us to understand, okay, okay, I want you to understand this justification from the life of Abraham. And the way Genesis spoke about it was, it was a crediting. But where did this righteousness come from? So Paul answers right at the end in the very last verse talking about Jesus who was raised from the dead. In verse 25, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Okay, now, this part has to get a bit hard before it gets good. Okay, It is my responsibility to as best as I can, take you through the hard part. I know, I mean, you know, it's a bit abstract, a bit complex, but my, my, my responsibility is to take you through the hard part so that you can be grounded and built up on the truth. Okay? So you look at verse 25. The first part where he says, he was delivered over to death for our sins. Okay, that part, no problem. Okay, who delivered him? Again, the way Paul puts it, he was delivered over by God. God delivered 
his own son over to death for our sins. Now, what does the for our sins mean? It is for the sake of dealing with our sins, right? That's the idea, right? Jesus was delivered over to the cross so that he could face the wrath of God so that, right, for the sake of dealing with our sins that have been put on him. Now, you continue the phrase, okay, verse 25, second part, and was raised to life for our justification. Now, what does the for mean there? Jesus was raised to life. Now, the for here is different to the first for. The first for, for the sake of dealing with our sins. But the second for, he was raised to life for the benefit of our justification. Okay, He was raised to life so that we could have justification. Now, the thing that you need to understand is, why was Jesus raised to life? Who is not raised to life is because he is being condemned by God for his sins. Because death is God's judgment on sin. And so if a person dies and remains dead, that is because he is paying the penalty of his sins. Now Jesus died because he was bearing our sins. But Jesus in and of himself was sinless. He was perfect. That is why scripture tells us death had no hold on him. Death had no hold on him because he was sinless. He did not deserve to be dead. He did not deserve to remain dead. And so he was raised to life to prove that he was indeed sinless, to prove that he was indeed perfectly righteous. And so he was raised to life for the benefit of our justification. Jesus, in being raised to life, is God declaring, yeah, this man does not deserve to be dead because he is sinless, he is perfectly righteous. And so he's raised to life for the benefit of our justification. He's raised to life so that we can be justified. And so when we have faith, it becomes credited to us righteousness. Because this faith, this faith is the instrument that brings us into unity with Christ so that what He has, we have. Because faith in itself is not some righteous deed that God sees, oh, you have faith. I, I like the fact that you have faith and so your, you having faith pleases me and so I will accord you the label of righteous. Okay, now I did say it is difficult. Okay, so some, I'm losing some of you, but I need to say, I need to persevere because there have been even preachers and Bible teachers. Okay, I came across one that we would have considered him completely legit. In fact, he has occupied this pulpit before. But when he taught about this truth, he got it wrong. He got it wrong. Because he taught it in that way. He said, God looks at the person's faith and says, yeah, 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 I like the fact that you have this faith. This, this faith in you 
pleases me to the extent that I will call you righteousness. No, this is completely not what the Bible is saying about righteousness and how we have it. The Bible is saying Christ has been raised to life and that is a demonstration, that is the guarantee that he is perfectly righteous before God. He's been raised to life. That is his vindication. And so by faith, our faith is the instrument that connects us to Christ. And so when we are connected to Christ, okay, Paul's shorthand for this is in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. We are in Christ by faith. And we are in Christ, we have His righteousness. So Abraham believed God and it was credited to him righteousness. Where did this righteousness come from? It came from the righteousness of Christ. Because faith is the instrument that connects us to Christ and because we are connected to Christ, we have His righteousness. Because a lot of Christians think of it as it is as I journey on the Christian life that I build up my store of righteousness. Okay, think of it this way. Think of it as in the future sometime, you know you have this big bill to pay. I mean, maybe it's just this big insurance and you just pay annual premium, whatever this. You know, in the future, there is this big, massive bill you have to pay. And so you know it's coming. And so you are going towards that date, you save money, right? You cut down on this expense, so you make sure when the day comes, you have enough money in your account to pay that bill. So some Christians misunderstand their righteousness and think of it this way, that it is, yes, yes, the day of reckoning, okay? It's coming. So now as I journey on, I chalk up enough. Right? I, I, I try to add to that store. What I am trying my best, and I've been praying as I was preparing this, praying for me, praying for you, is that this will get true to you. So that when the day comes and you are lying there, on your death bed. For some of us, it will come sooner. But for all of us, unless Jesus returns, it will come. What we understand now and what we continue to hold on to, to what Paul is saying here, is that on that day when you or I, when we are lying there on our death bed, we do not have to have the anxiety. Okay, now it's become clear that day of reckoning, that the, the, the bill needs to be paid soon. And the anxiety of, is there enough in the account? Have I chalked up enough? Because it's not just 10 years later, to, okay, no, I can, I can chalk up now, I can keep working on it, but you know you're on your deathbed. I don't want any of us to have the anxiety of have I done enough? 
Rather, Christian friends around you, all they should need to do is to remind you the gospel, to say to you, your righteousness is in Christ. Christ is your righteousness. Because the righteousness you have, that, that, um, that the account, you need not have any anxiety that is not enough because the day that you had faith, the day that you believe you were connected to this Christ who is perfectly righteous and because by faith you were connected to Him, you have been credited with a righteousness that on the last day God will say, well, come in, come in and inherit the world. Sink your roots deep into this. That the righteousness you have is Christ's righteousness that has been imputed, accounted, credited to you. It is not your own. You have it by faith. May God help us. Amen.